0: Democracy. we going up the wrong way. We're going to have to stop. Great so a secret wars. They can not expose them all. we going up the wrong way. We're going to have to stop.
1: Welcome to episode seventy-two of the cakewatch Podcast. My name is chris kendall i'm a eurocrat i'm a civil servant working for the european union institutions in brussels um i'm born and bred in the uk but i'm a passionate european uh, which is why i do this podcast in a strictly personal capacity because i'm so 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 fucked off about brexit and feel that the voice of those of us who are believers in europe and working work for the eu we're not heard as often as we ought to be so that's why I do the Cake Watch podcast with my co-host Steve Bullock, but um, Steve has stepped back from the podcast for, for the time being, so I'm, I'm hosting um, solo today. However, I am joined by a special guest. My um, special guest today is Steve Bullock.
0: Hi. Steve. <laughs> nice, to be- <laughs> nice to be on your podcast, Chris.
1: Steve, I haven't seen you literally in, well, since m- February?
0: February, yeah. yeah. You're looking absolutely. very well. Your hair's grown a bit. <laughs> it has grown quite a lot, actually. I mean, I'm not one for haircuts on the whole anyway. You're not a so friend didn't take much of an excuse. Yeah, it didn't take much of an excuse not to, not to go to the evil hairdressers. So. So I you, mean, they're just, whoever you go to, it's always terrible when they've done it. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you might as well
1: just leave it. So, Steve, Steve yeah. um, you have had the dreaded disease
0: yeah yeah so i had i had covid early on um the beginning of april and it just sort of didn't didn't really i didn't really recover from it and we thought it was long COVID, and uh uh, my doctor thought it was psychosomatic uh, um (laughs) <laughs> 'Cause he didn't believe in long COVID. But, well nobody believed in long COVID in like, well, Boris Johnson April. doesn't believe funny it, does now, he? You know, it's only now people believe in long COVID. But anyway, actually it turned out that I had uh I changed doctor and he looked at my test results again and he thought instantly that it was uh that I had diabetes mm. which had made COVID worse. Type two, the 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 the, the more managed, much more manageable mm. one. Um and um, I'd probably had it for quite a while. Um, and that had made the COVID worse, and the COVID had made it worse. Um, and uh, <clears throat> but I'm re- but I'm, reco- I'm recovering now. I'm taking the the, the medication. It's tried and tested and works.
1: Hmm.
0: And there was a bit of despair there in the summer because I didn't have a diagnosis, and it didn't. It felt like you know, some weeks I was getting worse, some weeks I was getting a little better, hmm. but it didn't feel like I was getting better. You've been but, uh, you've been you've been, but getting,
1: you've been keeping away from the bleach.
0: Yeah. Yeah, keeping well. What I've mainly been doing is staying away from carbohydrates um, and uh, and and eating very large quantities of meat with small amounts of salad. Ah.
1: So no bleach, no carbs, lots of meat. Excellent. Okay. Lots
0: of apparently there are other low carbohydrate foods, but the meat and cheese (laughs) are the ones that seem to work best for me. Well,
1: you're looking very well on it, and um, it's. um, no, we've, we've given you a holiday from, from from the podcast, which includes a holiday from your entire microphone and everything. So we've got a really shitty uh, <laughs> Skype recording that I'm sure the listeners will, will... Well, they'll just have to deal with it. I'm sure um, they will man. But listen, so what a special surprise to have you back as a special guest, but not the only surprise in this podcast. I have no. A second no, special surprise in this podcast. We have a second special guest. The second special guest is somebody that many of our listeners will... Have heard of uh, a an author by the name of
2: Ian Dunt. Ian. What Hello. the fuck?
3: Hey.
2: What did you just did you just say what the fuck? Was that my intro?
1: <laughs> yes. Remember we, we came up with this stick with the whole thing the whole idea was that we were gonna spend five minutes saying fuck to each other. That was that was the entire shtick. Fuck.
2: Oh, I remember, like, the scene in, in uh, The Wire. Okay,
1: yeah, I see. Well, I think I, think I can probably do that. Maybe we shouldn't. Just tone the tempo. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't. My, my, my partner thought that was a really bad idea, actually.
0: Well, it seems a bit contrived now we've actually it's got a to this point. It's a bit contrived, doesn't it, yeah. And she, she said
1: that you'll lose a lot of listeners if you just spend five minutes saying fuck to each other.
2: <laughs> it is arguably true, yeah.
1: Almost. I'm, said, it. I'm
0: sure there'll be enough of saying that to each other in the discussion anyway.
2: So. <laughs> Yeah, no. This is this this. this
1: th- there will be swearing in this podcast. So if you're listening to this on your kitchen um, device with the with the kids, uh, you might want to stop. But um, yeah, the idea was. I mean, we, that's that's how we got the idea of doing the podcast. Was that we were we were chatting on Twitter and, and and saying what what a hilarious thing it would be if we just spent an entire episode saying fuck to each other. And then somebody said, well, you really should get Ian on. And we
2: thought like, yeah, that'd be great, and then you were like, yeah, I'd do that. <laughs> well, wasn't it supposed to be? What's the story of the the Romaniacs Cakewatch Watch uh, team up that never happened? Was it was was it w- it was supposed to be in Brussels when we were there or something?
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was meant to be. In, it, the idea was to do it in Brussels um, and to get like a panel with you guys and some MEPs or people or commission people or whatever. Um, but to do it somewhere, you know, like as a like like do it do it live, you know. Mm-hmm. But then the logistics, um, particularly with my utter uselessness at logistics, as you <laughs> as you've seen today by me getting the time of the podcast wrong by a total of five hours, and then not being able to find a pair of headphones in a recording studio. You know, <laughs> you know are fucking amazing. Um, but yeah, but we talked to, we talked to Andrew about it, and we were all massively up for it but then we concluded that we'd all also lose quite
2: a lot of money to it. <laughs> <So we decided. laughs> yeah. I imagine that's where the conversation with Andrew stops. It's, it's a very good way to end any
0: conversation with Andrew, just be
2: like, you will lose money. He's like, right, well, let's talk about something else.
1: <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. No, it's, you know, trying to, org- we can't even organize a podcast on a podcast. So, <laughs> try <to> organise <laughs>
2: well, thanks for having me on guys. It's a pleasure.
1: No, I mean it's, we're delighted. I mean, obviously, we're, we're, we're both massive fanboys. Um, yeah, Steve I like and it. I both um, did a philosophy degree, not the same one, uh, not at the mm-hmm. same time. <laughs> I did mine a bit before Steve's, um, but we. Um, I was going to say that the the two, we're both very um, familiar with the chore of having to plough through incredibly heavy <laughs> philosophy books um, mm-hmm. for next week's essay, and um, so. <laughs>
2: This is a disaster, because, I mean, I have a philosophy degree as well, and I can't imagine anything that would make for worse recording material than three people with a philosophy degree <laughs> talking about it. That just sounds fucking dreadful. But it's what's
0: about to happen. Oh, yeah, for... so... Hey! <laughs> You're forgetting the secret sauce that, you know, mine was really in political philosophy specifically. It was a politics mm. degree, but I specialised oh, in political philosophy. But and I think that'll make all the difference to the level of interest people have, you
2: know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no shit. And that would have saved me, to be honest, like during my during my university years, I didn't mind that part. I really quite enjoyed that part. It was everything like I just I couldn't stand epistemology and metaphysics and, and logic. Logic almost killed <laughs> me. I fucking hated it so much. But it kinda of helped in the end. I remember like I think now it's kind of, it's that thing of, you know, that boring old thing people say of like learning Latin as a child really does help you with all this other stuff. But mm-hmm. as a child, you obviously fucking hate it. It's the same with doing like, with doing symbolic logic in uni. If it does sort of, it does really sort of teach you like a sort of muscle memory, how arguments are constructed and how to make a convincing argument and, and why an argument that you're listening to may in fact be bullshit. It's just that the actual process of going through learning symbolic logic is so utterly painful. You see, I got to skip all that a
1: bit because I mean, my philosophy degree was um, as, as part of Greats, which is the Oxford University's old fancy degree where you get to do a bit of literature and a bit of um, ancient history and a bit of philosophy on the side.
0: It's basically classics for well-to-do, well-heeled gentlemen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't necessarily describe myself as a well-heeled gentleman, but uh, <laughs> no, I don't know. I remember all the PPE guys. Bringing back their logic homework and thinking, oh my god, maybe I don't want to do philosophy and grades. Um, but then I did it. I really, really enjoyed it. But I just, I just did. You know, I, I just did the special highlights. We did the, um, well, yeah, we did the epistemology stuff, and we did the. Um, I, I became a big David Hume um, fanboy. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. which I think you are too, aren't you, Steve? Um,
0: yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. Especially on, on miracles and beliefs. I think yeah. it's very good. Also, also uh, Russo was very, very rude to him once. Uh, and, uh, well,
1: that's always I a good sign, isn't it? Because Russo was be a bit of a
2: twat, wasn't he? He was a bit well,
1: of a twat. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, really like,
0: I really like Rousseau But we'll get—I think we'll get onto that because
2: I he need was, to. Upgrade. I really, I really want someone to do like a, a sitcom of the time that Russo and Hume <laughs> spent together. Like, I just think it would be <laughs> fucking amazing. I'm just Russo, like just daily losing his shit <laughs> in a terrible way. And whom just trying to keep him under control? The only philosopher left who's still willing to take care of him as he as he sheds his brain like that would I would watch the shit out of that. I mean, admittedly, the audience would be me and <laughs> arguably you two. But
0: nevertheless, I really feel they should they should do it. I'm up for that. Catholic, you know, let's David, Catholic, David, David Mitchell as Hume, I think, would be great. <laughs> yes, yes. <I> <laughs> David Mitchell as, would be excellent as Hume. Um, he, really would. he really, really would. He really,
1: really would. With a sort of really Morningside accent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah
0: exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah.
1: But, you know, um, so Ian and I were, were chatting um, before the podcast, and um, and I was telling Ian about my particular obsession, which is the the novels of Patrick O'Brien, which are these um, historical novels set in the Age of Sail and Napoleonic Wars about these sailors, and it's all a bit it's a bit super nerdy and escapist. And Ian, I, I saw your eyes glazing over. But funnily enough,
2: <laughs> it's the screen froze, man. The screen froze. That wasn't really happening.
1: No, no what I was going to say was that, that one of the beautiful things about this um about these novels is th- it's the characterization of the two key characters and 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 one of them is this um is this learned irishman um stephen Matchin who has sort of liberal politics and, and he has a fantastic turn of phrase when he starts being rude about somebody and he has a wonderful he there's a there's a passage in it that i've just read where he is incredibly rude about rousseau
3: but i've no patience with a manual can't "'Ever since I found him take such notice "'of that thief Rousseau, "'I have had no patience with him at all. "'For a philosopher to countenance, "'that false ranting dog of a Swiss rapparee "'shows either a criminal levity "'or a no less criminal gullibility, "'gushing, carefully calculated tears, "'false confidences, "'untrue confessions, "'enthusiasm, "'romantic vistas. "'How I... Hate enthusiasm and romantic vistas," he said. "David Hume was of your opinion," said Graham. "I mean, with regard to Monsieur Rousseau, he found him to be little more than a crack at gabbleonsy."
1: What we thought we'd do is talk to you about your book. Uh, we I thought that would I be am. a good hook, and um, we both got your book. Um, Steve, how far into the book are you? Well,
0: I've been finished it.
2: You finished it. Oh, mate. Of course. course. So, I mean, how could... You have to sound quite so surprised at the idea that anyone will finish that book.
1: Well, where I was going with the whole thing about the two of us being um, used to, you know, ploughing our way through turgid philosophy texts is that this is not a turgid... This is not... This is an actual page turner. It's actually enjoyable to read. Having said that, I am only on page 63. So... (laughs) Of 487.
0: Well, <laughs> Chris, this is going to be very difficult if you're only on page 63 because there's going to be a lot. For me, there's going to be a lot of spoilers in this.
1: Oh shit! You know, yeah. I, mean, I don't. I, I, I I don't want, want to
0: spoil. I don't want to spoil what happens.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Liberalism overcomes all and vanquishes in the 21st century. Right? Is that what happens?
2: That's exactly that.
0: That's the climax yeah. at uh, the end. Yeah. 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 Um, something like that
1: well look I mean even though I've only done 60 odd pages I've already got sort of two, two, two pages of notes here um, so
2: fucking <laughs> <What the> hell
1: <laughs> I was really enjoying that the first thing I wanted to ask you Ian was um, have you you must you're a comics nerd um, graphic novel nerd you, you must have read that one about Birch and Russell what's it
2: called no I avoid that kind of really I avoid that kind of comics thing yeah Seriously? I do because yeah.
0: seriously, because you, you to need... be like Christian Rock for comics. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, no, there are it's some... very good. No, oh, whatever. Yeah, anyway, that's Well, I what seriously, I'm... you need no.
1: to turn the, your book into a comic book. I mean, you're not in. To... I'm not. Are you not in discussion with Marvel about that yet. Because I mean, really,
2: yeah, it's weird, but they're quite reluctant to pick up the phone to talk about. <laughs> Captain Liberal, my my long multi arc project that would see him take on Doctor Orban, but for some reason it's just not it's just not getting much pickup over there.
1: But I am mean, um, take seriously. I think it would be it would actually be. I'm I'm only on the history bits. I'm I'm not yet into the theory bit. So um, I, or I, I don't know if you ever get into the theory bit. I'm, i haven't got that far yet. <laughs> but in terms of the history bit, it's great fun. Where I'm going with this is that it's. Quite accessible. You, you, you've got writing style of a journalist, so you're you're okay. used to writing things to be immediately accessible to a wider audience. I mean, that's 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 your USP, is yeah. it? Yeah,
0: and it, and it, and, it, and sometimes it feels like you're reporting on events in the history of liberalism. Oh wow! Oh, that's so flattering. Thanks,
2: man. That's exactly what you're going for. There's a lot of like my whole my whole career was basically based on this guy at once really early on just saying I've written. You know, because I was such a flowery little cunt. So you know, the first pieces I did were all full of this kind of like description of you know, oh the windy streets of the but And he was just like, "You're not a fucking novelist. Just do your." Basically, he was just like, "Your job is." There's a guy on a bus. I, I, I repeat this all the time, but it was just like the the single most useful piece of advice I think I ever received in my career was just like, "There's a guy on a bus. He's holding the handrail. He's late for the meeting." And it's your job. You've got like 30 seconds with him. And it's your job to get this information as easily into his head as humanly possible. Um, and that's that was mostly for a news story. You could imagine just what a twat I was to try and make news stories flowery. But anyway, but it works for pretty much everything, because now, like, I'm, you know, a lot of the time you're thinking like narratives. So obviously, like I read a shitload of history books for the book. I read a lot of philosophy. And there's always this thing where they all they so often assume that you already know the subject you're talking about. So they'll say, you know, halfway through the narrative, they'll be like, and of course, once the king died, you know, this became good. And you are just like, don't tell me that, man, like I want you to have like mm. a story for <laughs> the whole thing. And so with the book, it's not about doing it quickly. It's, it's mostly about like just trying to ha- like make it as much as possible, like, like almost like a thriller or something, you know what I mean? Like something that you want to find out what happens next. But it's all part of that same thing of talking to that guy on the bus. And just doing the most efficient job you can of of getting that information in their head. When in this case that's about making it like as entertaining as possible, mm. I guess is, is the idea. And you have the well, same usually with, with normal journalism, right? Make it entertaining, make mm. it funny, make it upbeat, like that people sort of it, there's no reason this stuff should be hard. Your job is to make it as simple as possible, I guess. Hmm. No, I
0: think you really achieve that. And I think the way you do it is by telling the sp- Telling, I mean, obviously, we've all read lots of history of ideas stuff, but you tell the history of the ideas through the people who who, who had them and did and and did things about mm-hmm. them. <clears throat> and I think that's actually a really, I think that's a really good way of, mm. of doing it to draw people in and make them accessible. <laughs> <laughs> Be, Philosophy, claims <laughs> you, you won't believe what René Descartes looks like now. <laughs> 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 Click here to see the homes of the philosophers. <laughs> um, but no, but the but the but the ideas are so central, and I, I really think it's I really think it's a very timely book. And I, I think it. Me and you ch- chatted on on Twitter, Ian, and about how uh, how we felt some guilt about having been complacent, and you mentioned this mm. in, in the last chapter about complacency being the mass of enemy of the success of, of liberalism. And I, I mean, I, I think it's, I, I feel that very, very deeply though. I mean, I was certainly totally complacent. You know, 1997 happened. Mm. Things did get better. Um, and, and then there was Iraq and stuff. And that was, you know, that was kind of, a, that was aside, that was kind of aside from, aside from all this. But you assume that the fundaments were there, the fundamental principles, the fundamental basis for how uh, politics and public life is is, is conducted were there. And then, mm-hmm. and then it wasn't. Um, and it wasn't. You know, it might have looked like it happened overnight, but it wasn't. It was planned and uh, and very and 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 very deliberate. You know. Um, but I think that the you know what, what one thing that's really struck me in the last few years is how many people would claim to be liberals and I mean believe they're liberals, mm. but have very little concept of the of the history of liberalism, but also the kind of fundamental principles that go under it. People. Mm. I have the sense that a lot of people, self-declared liberals, are liberals in policy terms because they have the same policies as other. They want the same policies as other liberals, rather than share rather than sharing the sharing the fundamental principles and allowing the policies to follow from that.
2: Yeah, or or worse, man. Like I was looking at Oh, who's that god awful twat? Um, what? <laughs> Lawrence Fox? Lawrence.
0: Box. Sorry,
1: there's so many options. And, you, and you, as soon as you said. God awful twat! I thought. Oh, he's talking about Lawrence Fox. Yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm amazed because honestly, I would have thought he'd just be like, I don't know, man. I can. I've immediately thought of at least thirty people. Yeah, but like, it's
1: definitely <laughs> Lawrence Fox. Yeah,
2: right. Well, like his whole new party. I, what was amazing me about that was he calls himself a liberal, yeah. and yet every piece of every every inch of that kind of shit is anti-liberalism. Like it, mm. it, yeah. it, almost to a sentence. You know that the whole description of everything is anti-liberalism. And you get the same with remember reading a piece i think it was by it was in the spectator um but anyway and and it was the same it was sort of attacking black lives matter um and then at the end it was like this is you know why we need to go back to basic liberal principles and you're like in what fucking world did you decide that what you just said is is liberalism and then of course the rest of the time what i see is people on the left attacking liberalism because they can't tell the difference they, they can't tell that you know neoliberalism or laissez-faire is a subsection of liberalism rather than the entirety of it but i honestly at, at most of the time i i can count on one hand the number of times in the last sort of 10 years i've in, in that kind of mainstream political debate that i've actually seen the word used in an appropriate or accurate way
1: well i mean that's partly that's one of the things that um i i thought we could talk about actually when, when when we first started talking about having having this podcast together i thought well you know what i'm particularly interested in the way that language um is used and abused uh and, and becomes highly subjective in, in in all of these discussions that we're having at the moment about the world on fire and um liberalism I and mean, we we've talked many times on the podcast about federalism for example that's one of my particular hobby horses and how um it it can mean whatever the Um, person using it wants it to mean Mm -hmm. um and liberalism the same i mean um, especially coming at it from um the perspective of somebody who works in eu politics or eu government i should say rather um liberalism means different things in different member states uh largely to do with you know what the liberal party in that country happens to be because if you're in Belgium the liberal party is effectively your sort of your conservative party um, or at least that the way it used to be um whereas in other countries I mean if you go to I mean Canada for god's sake I mean Canada's always the one we go back to for for, for all these discussions including federalism <laughs> Canada's amazing I mean Canada when you you rock up in Canada and and the liberal party there is there uh, sort of Left of centre, sort of social democratic party, except when you go to British Columbia, where the Liberal Party is actually their conservative party, and it just gets incredibly confusing. Mm. So, when you're in this world where the the L word is used to mean just whatever the people using it want it to mean, it does become very confusing. And as you say, it's become such a term of abuse also on the left that um, what you're doing with this book, which presumably is what, what what you set out to do in the in the first place recap re- retrieving the word recapturing the word um redefining it or rather recalling the definition of it so that we use it advisedly and we understand what it is that we're talking about with a rooting in the the thinkers that got us to this point isaiah berlin i see uh, from the index features heavily in the bits of the book that i haven't read yet <laughs> looking forward to. i think no i think it's a fantastic <laughs> I I do um, I I commend you for this. <laughs> this is going to be
2: a terrible podcast.
1: <laughs> oh,
0: that's great. I really like that part.
2: It's at least more. It's at least more honest than when there's people going around like
0: yeah, you, can, you. You
2: absolutely know when someone's interviewing you, and you you can I can instantly tell how far they got. But at least in your case, you're very detailed about you. That's Let's discuss I'm this about. bit on page fifty four.
0: <laughs> When we thought we were going to do it last night, I was up really super late. When we thought we were going to do it last, this last week, I was up really really late trying to trying to get through it. And Anna oh came in goodness. on Anna came on on her way to bed. So "What are you doing? Why don't you just do what you what what we all usually do? Just just turn to page three hundred and twenty and make a point <laughs> yeah. about something else." <laughs> That's what we used to do in inter-service consultations in the commission, you know. <laughs> I haven't got time to read this entire bloody non-paper. I'll just criticise something on page seven, it'll be fine. Well, it's a Boris it.
1: Johnson approach, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. If you can't put it on... <laughs> well, at least he, he, he has a piece of paper, doesn't he? He he will he, read the executive summary, whereas for, for, for Donald Trump, they they need to draw him a cartoon.
2: I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> Even that. Even that sounds highly optimistic, to be honest.
0: But, but I think that one of the one of the the definition things really interesting because I, here I I'm just getting my notes here, which I've scrolled on the last page. Oh my
1: god, he's written in the book.
2: <laughs> no, the, I know I've god. seen a photo
0: of it. I love that. <laughs> uh, I that's the best book. when you pick the book up again, you remember what you thought. You you reminded what you thought about it. You
2: know. Yeah, and it makes and... them lived in, and it makes them like a living document. I mean, I have like most of my books are like that. Although some of them. Like the ones I really hate are also scrawled in as well. There's like at least by several up there by various philosophers where there's just notes in the margin going like, what defeat, you catastrophic human being. So
0: it's not always positive, but usually it is. <laughs> yeah, no, so I do. I also, um, my mum went, went to uni um, as, a, as a mature student when I was in my uh, sort of uh, early, te- early teens or a bit, hmm. a, a bit earlier. Yeah, no, no, a bit before that, and um, and she did uh, she did divinity. She became a minister, oh, um, wow. and but she did philosophy as part of that. And when I did philosophy at school, she gave me her copies of Ruffo and Mill and Bertrand oh, Russell's wow. History Western Philosophy, and they had her and they had her notes and underlining in it, and it was really lovely. Mm. Oh my god! To kind of have, nice. the, have the thoughts have the thoughts passed down mm. as well. I mean, she was wrong; mm-hmm. she believed in God, but you know, you um, know. <laughs> 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 but um <laughs> but she was extre- but you but she, but but my mum's extremely ex- extremely liberal, but the definition thing one of the things that really comes through in the book are the contradictions and tensions and the need to answer internal questions about about liberalism, and you get the tension between you know democracy and liberalism, majoritarianism versus uh versus, versus liberty and protection of, of individuals and minorities yeah economic versus social liberalism or as you put it you know laissez it there there's interventionist liberalism and the contradiction between positive and negative liberty so the uh negative liberty is being left alone to do what you want but as you put it uh there's essentially no point in being free to do things if you can't do them yes. uh, situation means that you you can't do them um and and also between political and social tyranny, you know, you see Mill kind of hovers on the edge uh, of sort of allowing social approbation, but mm-hmm. disallowing, you know, dis- disallowing uh, uh, pol- political or legal legal intervention. So you know, there's these tensions all the way through it, and it, it's I think that's one of the things that makes liberalism a little bit uh, uh, gives liberalism this reputation of being somehow sitting on the fence. Or mm-hmm. not casting your lot in. Whereas, but what the book really brings out is the radicalism of it, and I think that's really important. I think that's what we, that's what we, that's what we need mm-hmm. for it. It can't mm-hmm. be a sort of dead dogma. Uh, it has to be, and it has to be, and you know, I've, the book brings this out as well. And it has to, it has to be internally challenging because that's the nature, that's the nature of the nature of it is rationalist. So you have to be as rational with <laughs> yourselves and your own people as you are with others. You know.
2: Yeah, and and beca- because you know, it, it is the only is that a fair thing to say or am i am i going over a line i think that is a fair thing to say it's certainly let me put it in the in the fairest i can it's the political theory that the only one that has the concept of doubt baked into its foundations like its whole history is the history of the progress of the acknowledgement of doubt you know first of all existentially and then in religion and then in the secular world and eventually in your personal life, in what it is to have a good life. Um, and that isn't um, just some kind of quality that it has. That is a reflection of the fact that it is the only political theory that really deals with the world as it is, mm. which is that we are full of doubt about all sorts of things. Um, and by being the system that acknowledges that doubt, that acknowledges the fundamental conflict in human affairs, it puts itself far above any other because it works on the reality of the world the thing is the flip side of that is that people fucking hate that what they want is someone just to come down you know from a mountain and be like you can this is right and this is wrong and if you just do this stuff there'll be a utopia at the end of it and the whole liberal argument is basically like it's never going to fucking ha- there's never going to be a happy ending you know this is never we're never going to know all of this we're never going to know the right way to live all we can do is manage and mediate these disputes so it's unsatisfying But the thing is it at least has the satisfaction of dealing with the world as it really is rather than pretending yeah. to people that, that it's more simple than it actually is
0: no 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 and that's that that's you see this in the uh, in mill I, I, I mill was my the main thing i studied um mm. uh and you see this in mill with the with the utilitarianism as well and you see with the unpopularity of utilitarianism because People say, ah, but it gives the wrong results. You say, ah, no, hang on. You can't say that it gives the wrong results. It's a moral theory. It's a moral <laughs> theory which is designed. To provide. It's saying that the results it provides will be the will be the will be the moral one. Now, you can say you don't like the results, or you don't think that a theory that allowed or required X could possibly be, could possibly be uh, a valid moral theory. That's that's fine. Um, but it doesn't. Uh, utilitarianism doesn't really give doesn't give a way to live. It gives a way to make decisions. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And liberalism is much, much, much the same. It gives a, a way to create systems and create societies to allow decisions to be made.
2: I agree. I, although I think that what you've just described is Mill's utilitarianism. That's yeah, what he yeah, yeah, brings yeah. Yeah.
0: It. Not Bentham's, absolutely. Right.
2: Yeah. Before that, it was much more crude and brutal. But but mm-hmm. but Mill brings that. Yeah, that much more sort of relaxed, instinctive sort of. Um, that sense of it being a perspective rather than a set of answers. Um, so he does it a tremendous service. Although, you know, people are torn as to whether the things that he does to it mean it's still utilitarianism at the end, which I think it's kind of, there's plenty of people who read all of the mill stuff on utilitarianism is basically like a long psychodrama about his relationship with his father. <laughs> and yeah, yeah.
0: yeah,
2: Sort of what it is. You know, it's basically someone trying to process his relationship with his father through the means of philosophy, which is not advisable. I think, and anyone should should stay away from that method. But yeah,
0: I, I, I had a theory that, that where, Mill, where, Mill, where Mill was kind of ultimately leading, but I don't think he ever, but he never got to and never never wrote down was that the important thing wasn't happiness, but, but avoiding suffering. Um, and moral theorists always treat happiness and suffering as simply two sides of the same coin. You know, they're opposite and equal. One unit one unit of happiness is equivalent to one unit of suffering. But if you ask somebody that's suffering um, how, how bad it is and how it makes them feel um, and ask somebody who's having a nice time, um, then you have to have a fucking nice time to get anywhere near being the equivalent of even quite a minor bit of suffering, like, you know, stubbing your toe really, really mm. hard or, or something like that. So and actually, you know, there's this theme running through particularly the bits on utilitarianism in Liberty. it's much more about avoiding suffering you know he talks about uh that the the whole world loses from the from opinions not being able to be voiced you know he's not Mm -hmm. necessarily whereas moral theory is obsessed with the good or the right it's obsessed with the positive concepts And, and actually what you know what i what definitely seems to creep in over mill's work is a sort of humanitarian uh humanitarian concern with the absence of suffering or being released from released from suffering as a central as a as a central moral concept, because you're right, His his sort of happiness discussions become a bit kind of uh, not not glib, but they feel they feel a bit like special pleading at times. Like he's really, like you said, like he's really desperately trying to trying yeah. to fit it, fit it in. You know,
2: it's also such a strange. I mean, and this is kind of off topic. It's such a strange thing to base a philosophy around for me, happiness, because it's so hard to pinpoint. You know, like. You go through your life and you constantly think, if I just have this thing, then I'll be happy. And you're invariably wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like, whether it's a job or, or a thing you've always wanted. Most of the time, you sort of... You, I at least find that happiness is in the doing rather than the getting, you know? And and, and, and sort of something that you almost realise afterwards you're experiencing. It just feels so nebulous and, and odd and hard to pin down. But it's very modern Western... It's a very modern Western thing, though, isn't it? I mean, when I think about no, my
1: not really classical Apparachia, eudaimonia, but that—that's not happiness, is it? I mean, yeah, that, it's serenity, more virtue. Serenity, it?
0: serenity of, it's welfare and serenity of soul. I think.
1: No. Yeah. Well, okay. Serenity is more. You know. I mean, when you look at you look at Buddhist you know, Eastern philosophy too, and so, I mean, it's it's not so much about happiness as the absence of suffering, as 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 feeling virtuous. Because I mean, eudaimonia. I mean, I would. I would never have that's interesting that you said that because i mean i would never have thought of translating that as happiness i would have that's interesting look but at me, think look me trying that's to inject some philosophy into this well, you two
2: <laughs> we need more knob <laughs> guys. oh that's good that's good you should definitely interrupt our conversation because there is a chance that would we'll just go down a fucking rabbit hole of utilitarianism <laughs> like you would not believe no i
0: think that's that's a central point is that happy is that an absence of su- an absence of suffering, or at least uh, you know, suffering being minimized to a certain level, is essentially a, a, a necessary but insufficient condition for 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 happiness. I mean you're right, it's a it's a mm. it's a nebulous concept. I mean, look at all these I'm sitting in a room with all my guitars. Mm. Well, actually loads of them are upstairs, these aren't all of them by any means. Jesus Christ. Every every single one of them and every single amp and every single pedal was the answer and this was gonna be it.
1: I wanted to go back to the whole parenting thing because I'm actually quite, I'm quite interested by that. I, I think I had registered that your mum is, is a vicar, Steve, but I don't know if I would hmm. entirely internalized it. And I, I, I know for sure that my philosophy degree was all about my parents <laughs> without a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> wow, really? Without a doubt. Well, I was brought up in a very strict evangelical, um, even to say charismatic sort of religious home. And going to university and and studying philosophy and was all about finding my way out of that particular um, huh. world worldview world. So yeah, for me, for me, for sure. And once I'd got there, that was it. It was like year three, having read Hume, having worked out that you know, where 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 moral where morality came from for me, and that was it. Now I never had to read anything else except for. Patrick O'Brien novels and And how to be a liberal and how to be (laughs) a liberal now listen I've I've got two things I want to talk about both coincidentally within the first 60 pages of your book It's
2: crazy so funny such a coincidence three things three things
1: i really really i I am really enjoying it and i'm I'm protesting too much but i actually genuinely am i'm finding the i'm learning stuff that i i wasn't i i I hadn't really been aware of for example from from the um from the civil war i loved that um the um (laughs) what have i got here p47 that's not a form, that's the page, page 47. <laughs> Demonstrations in London, crowd breaks into Parliament, forces the Lords to repeal a vote, starts ordering the MPs around in the Commons. I was thinking mm. wow, if they could do this 400 years ago, where were the crowds two years ago, a year ago?
0: Could we not do because with a little been, bit of this? Hmm? Because there would have been two crowds and it would have been violent mob rule. Yeah, because yeah. of liberalism
2: you didn't spend enough time doing that walk from Westminster down Millbank to do the tv stuff where you had like the remain and leave crowds just shout at you it was like not a nice scene it was a genuinely quite unpleasant place to be I I don't want to go back
1: no I mean well in all fairness the the English civil war is probably not a place that anybody particularly wants to be um but but the politics of it is so absolutely fascinating um
2: it's crazy it's just crazy and 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 I find it like I keep so um, we're going through and watching a bunch of sort of films now that are like connected to the book for like various points in the book or whatever. What I find amazing is that whenever there's a film that's in the English Civil War period, it kind of reflects that stuff because it's always like I think of like a field in England or Fannie Lynn Delivered. It's always these really kind of nightmarish churning chaotic sort of Mm. films because I think that moment we it's almost like as a country we still don't know how to process it Mm. and in fact Mm. I I watched the film Cromwell which I think from the 70s a sort of biography of Cromwell which is I mean very handsomely mounted and utterly fucking terrible where again they just they don't know they don't know how to they try to turn him into a hero and if you try to turn Cromwell into a hero you basically end up justifying tyranny. Hmm. You, just, you end up justifying like a purging of parliament, hmm. and so even there, when they try to fit that period into a normal narrative, it just comes up and it just bites your own ass off. Hmm. You can't do it. It's it's this extraordinary churn of chaos and shocking new ideas that I I I, I honestly have never come a histori- across a historical period that I think I find more fascinating than than those few years in England.
1: Well, it's like they say about the French Revolution. Um, what 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 do we think of the French Revolution, it's too soon to tell. You probably mentioned that later yeah. in the book, that I haven't got to yet. But, <laughs>
2: but indeed, I mean, you could say the same thing about the uh, English Civil War. Yeah, you could. You could. And in fact, one of the things, so right, so I, I obviously did like lots and lots of research and talked to lots of people and then you write it and then you, there's always a bit at the end of each chapter where I'm, I'm sending it off to experts to, to have a look at it and to say, well, what do you think I'm getting wrong here? Hmm. And one of their main things that I was getting was just like, you, you, you keep on shunking this into a modern narrative. Mm. But no one at the time was was thinking in these terms, you mm. know, like to us now, the king looks like the old age a relic of the old age, and the levellers, who are the main people I'm talking about, these sort of radical proto-liberals, look like the the harbingers of a new age. But actually, they thought in exactly the opposite way. Mm. Like, the I first thought of himself as a modernizer, mm. someone to clear up the monarchy, to sort everything out, whereas the Levellers thought they were harking back to these ancient English liberties. Mm. So even on, on the most basic sense of, of, of teasing out the ideas, it's incredibly counterintuitive and very confusing and, and deeply mercurial. Well, that's another really important thing about... Um, Training one's
1: mind to be objective, uh, to try to 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 avoid the trap of subjectivity, because um, that that that's a trap that we also have in in modern foreign relations, for example, um, and 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 it's the it's the difficult path to steer between on the one hand saying well no look these are our values this is what we're attached to this is what these are the values that we espouse and that we're going to seek to project, while at the same time respecting uh, the fact that. Those values aren't necessarily shared, or they might be shared in a slightly different way. And this is a very human. This is a very human argument. You know, um, what what, did, what is morality? Well, it's, it's it's a general consensus of where we are, rather than a universal rule. Um, so, for example, in, in, in the work that I do with with Central Asia, with some of these post Soviet states, um, seen from a Western perspective, or a classic, if you like, classic Western liberal perspective, rather than. Uh, <laughs> Uh, A Trumpian or or Johnsonian perspective um, there are many things to criticise about the way in which these countries are run Um, but seen from the perspective of these countries themselves um, if you look for example at the the kind of reformist um, programme of a centralising president like the president of Uzbekistan who is um, not what you would could describe as a, as a modern democrat or a Western style democrat at all, and um, seriously flawed democratic processes. But nevertheless, it's a path of a path of um, of reform that I think, seen from their perspective, is quite radical and modernising. And it, it's it's a it's well, yeah, challenge. Stop,
0: stop boiling, stopping boiling journalists. And, yeah, I mean, you're right. The the it is seen as radical, right, like, you know, to to move from. To move from absolute, you know, absolute authoritarianism to anything else. Well,
1: they're moving from they're moving from government by by force to government by consent, and and it's there, it's the transition that, that, that it's very difficult, and and it's not something. And a lot of the people who are perhaps opponents within the country, as opposed to international NGOs and and, and Western governments, have a problem with that. They they they're not so keen about the moving from about moving from government by by force, the government by consent so I mean these are all this is why it's so important to have that historical perspective, the past is another country and other countries are other countries too and I mean I think it's hard to understand where we are in in, in time without um, at the same time understanding that others are coming at this from another angle and that's also true in the Brexit context, that's one of the things that Steve and I, you have constantly been trying to um, get people to, to understand is that you can't understand Brexit purely in terms of the British debate, whichever side of it you're on. Mm. Um, you can't understand the negotiation between London and, and, and Brussels without also understanding where Brussels is from. If you don't do that, you're never going to get a good result. You have to understand where the other side
0: is coming from. <laughs> I, agree, I agree, of course, but you've got to be, but you've got to be really careful with this. Not, and this comes out in Ian's book a lot as well. Uh, you know, the the slip into relativism is mm-hmm. a really, really fucking easy, easy, easy one to make. You know, well, that's the um, tricky bit,
1: isn't it? That's the tricky bit. How do you, how do you, how do you reconcile that?
0: So that that's I mean, that's, I mean, that's
1: that's precisely the question that our philosophers here have been grappling with. How do you, if you're going to be a relativist, how do you stop from becoming
0: an anarchist or a, you know? Well, well, you can't be. It might be, but. The, there was something really striking when I was doing research years and years ago. I looked into uh, torture because I was thinking, how can you know, how can I show a universality, a universal bad? How can I show the universality of a given, a given bad, you know? Um, and uh, so I looked at the torture. I thought, come on, everybody agrees torture is wrong. And somebody said, well, torturers, torturers don't agree that it's wrong. So hmm. I went and read this literature, which is pretty harrowing and nasty couple of weeks to read it. But I read this literature, which was interviews with people who had tortured. Um, so interviews with people who had done really fucking dreadful, dreadful things to to other people. And every single one of them believed it was wrong. Every single one knew that what they're doing was in itself wrong. But they believed it was justified by something else.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know,
0: in a moral calculus. But nobody believed it was fine. Nobody believed the other people were non people? No, nobody believed the political propaganda that their dictator bosses put out that these people are non people, or uh, that they that they don't count, or that they're subhuman. Actually, they completely uh, the the people who tortured. Uh, actually, the studies were mainly uh, in uh, in a couple of Latin American countries. They knew exactly that they knew exactly that it was that it was terrible, but they believed it was, uh, but but they believed it was the, the right thing in the calculus, and that's where. There, you see, like the that's where relativism stops. Um, you, you can say we we see it from historical perspectives. We see that things are things are different, and people come at things from different places and different contexts and view things differently. You know, we're plur- we're, to some we're pluralists again. <laughs> going back to the book. But um, but, they've, but in liberalism there's a uh, there's a halt they've
1: a base. Well, foot. I mean, so well, but that's the that's the that's the debate, isn't it? I mean, uh, whereas Kant might see that as an as a categorical categorical imperative, um, Hume would say, well, no, there's, there's no universal there's no universal law that says torture is bad. It's just it just so happens that all of our all of our societies we all agree that collectively that torture is bad because obviously
0: it is. So therefore that yeah. then... Yeah, but Hume basically was a relativist in that respect. That's the yeah. that's the, that's, the, that's the kind of point. But there's a there's a baseline of common there's a baseline of common humanity, and that's not uh, that's not just based on agreement in a given society in a given moment. It's not just based on agree. The gun laws were based on an agreement made around the drafting of the uh, U.S. Constitution. Uh, the most basic rights of what the most basic concept of what a human is. Um wasn't but it's not it's not, was, an, it's not you know, an, an
1: immutable law of nature it it's something that uh, arises from human society
2: no, but for the for this purpose no, that no, part no. that part doesn't really matter too much what what matters is when we talk about universality are there values that humanity holds um universally um and if there are, the relativist argument falls apart, and it seems very clear that there are like different societies have different bundles of values, right so they might by tradition more heavily than individual freedom or whatever. But ultimately, ideas like empathy um, and even democracy are pretty much universal in different to different levels and in different ways. And as soon as we acknowledge that, we can start saying that certain things are true, morally true for all of humanity. Mm-hmm. And one of those, and that's the central liberal principle, is that the freedom of, indi- of the individual is true for all of humanity. Now, if you don't say that, you are in the abyss like if you if you give up on that you will find yourself justifying you know female genital mutilation and you know the, the killing of ethnic minorities. there is nothing that you can use to stop the moral justification of the most obscene acts in in the human condition unless you say that there are there are certain universal values and what's telling to me is when that the cultural relativist argument, I mostly hear it from the left, you know, which like, Oh, it's a form of imperialism for you to take your Western liberalism and to try and apply it to this one. But actually the effects of it are predominantly extremely right wing mm. because it gives power to the most reactionary authoritarian figures in a community to say, well, we're not like that. You know, mm. we don't have any lesbians here. You know, mm. you can't bring your LGBT ideology into yeah. a space. Like, well, fuck you we can do that. And in fact, liberalism demands that we do it. It doesn't demand that we, we, of course we recognize cultural differences, absolutely. And in fact, it's a prism by which people can express those, but there is a moral baseline in the world. And that baseline emerges from the freedom of the individual. And unless we acknowledge it, we are in a chasm of darkness. And what troubles me is that too many people at the moment, I have to say again, especially on the left, but you hear very similar arguments on the right, especially the religious right, In fact, the Pope comes up with with them sometimes. making the same kind of the same kind of points, and it leads to a very very dark place indeed. Hmm. Yeah.
0: No, I think I, I thought the, the the bit in the the bit in the book about community leaders was uh, re- really really struck a chord with me. You know, I remember growing up in the growing up in the eighties in the in the north, and you know, community leaders or <sighs> community leaders would come on the local local news, and you think, who the fuck are they? Exactly. You know, <laughs> who the who the fuck is this? You know, you talked about how you came to philosophy, uh, Chris. Um, I, I really came to it. I came to it because I was made to. I wanted to play Sunday League football, and I was made to go to Sunday School instead. Uh, um, and uh, ended up uh, formulating a very uh, a very coarse problem of evil, and <laughs> telling <laughs> the minister. <laughs> I thought that meant God probably didn't exist. Um. And uh, and yeah, that kind of that kind of that kind of set me off because when I, you know when I was in church, I was listening to this very, very very nice friend of the family and a friend of my a great a very great friend of my mum. But I was listening to her talk and I was thinking, who the fuck are you? Who on what basis are you are you are you saying this? On what authority are you are you are you saying this stuff that to me sounds pretty fucking implausible, you know. Mm. Um, and that, you know, that was what really—that was what really set me off on this. And I think you really—you really grabbed that about how, um, you know, the, how the road to hell is paved with good intentions in mm. community dialogue and uh, community representation and all this kind of thing. And yeah, what you often end up with is you either end up with the loudest or the wealthiest or you know the most locally upstanding rot- Rotarians, one. Equ- equ- yes. <laughs> The tyranny of the, the of Rotarians, <laughs> no, in, what, in whatever in whatever community it happens to be, or the the, the equivalent of it, mm. um, or you end up with or you end up with nutters, or you end up with mm. the most ex- the most ex- the most extreme because they they've got a demagogic following from being from being so so extreme, and mm. you actually completely miss what the man on the uh, uh, number ten omnibus thinks about A- any of those. he was part of he have part of one or more of those,
2: those, those groups yeah and, w- and what's fascinating as well right is like you know as as three white guys talking about this is this this <laughs> yeah. so rarely but it so rarely happens you know no, I, I am treated as an individual right like all the time you know people people never suggest that i think the same way as all other white guys but people generally in minority groups are constantly talked over in this way. Like when you have Asian, I'd start with Asian mates and you get, you know, um, a community leader who's typically connected to the mosque and to local business interests saying that they represent their Asian community. Asian mates just be like, who the fuck are you? Like on what possible basis could you be said? So there's also, especially, you know, in this country, but also when we look at it internationally, a deeply patronizing, conservative, reactionary element to all this.
0: I was thinking about Rousseau because I'm a I'm a bit more of a fan of Rousseau than um, mm-hmm. than you are. I think I think Rousseau was basically uh, basically a sort of uh, bucolic idealist who imagined politics taking place between between beneath trees, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think that the all with through it you see you, you see the what I would think of the misuse of his ideas, but you would say the use of his ideas. I think. Um, but he isn't there. Isn't there when we get to the modern day? Isn't there a bit of an issue that what people say, what people, how people criticize liberalism or the liberal order? More, moreover, is kind of has some truth in it as well. I mean, for example, the origin of property. Why? I mean, the origin of property, the history of the origin of property, is the origin. Is just a history of force and corruption. And dreadfulness, and, and yet people with nothing are expected to simply accept accept the distribution of property, the woeful, woefully unfair distribution of property. I mean, Rousseau had a point about that.
2: Um, he, he
0: had a point about he had about a point about he had a point about consent and common and commonality. Um, and the big one and the big thing for Rousseau, the big thing in Rousseau for me was the way he talks about organ, sectional organizations and or sectional groups, and that's what that's what brought me on to it, talking about community groups. You know, he said they will always, always simply act out of their own interest or the interests of, of their members, and that will that will always tend to be contrary to the general go- to the to the general good. Because if the general good and their good was the same thing, they wouldn't need to do that. They wouldn't need to form a sectional a sectional association as well. And his solution was either to ban them all or to have uh, an, a a bigger pluralities of, of them, of them as possible. <laughs> and but what what we're seeing now is you see that these you know these interest groups. Co- coalesce into a few you know a, a few big industry organizations a few a few lobbying firms or a few, political uh, parties. A, few uh, a few political parties and, and kind of you know russo was kind of right about that you can understand people looking at looking at it and going look these look i'm not voting for any of these people i'm not trusting any of these people because their association that they're in is all is all that matters to them their party or their or their group i mean there's lef- there's definitely some truth in that, but. Um... I wrote a lot about, you know, I, it's, it's
2: funny, but the section on Rousseau that I had was actually really quite long at the start, and I tried to do a fairer thing. I think you're right, um, and we had to cut it down because the book is fucking long as it is, and you can't come too long. Um, you, you're right on property. I think his, his analysis of the origin of property, which is they stole it, <laughs> is <laughs> like much more convincing than John Locke's, of like, oh, maybe we all mixed our labor, and, you know, it was all fine, it was cool. It's like, no, obviously, he is more convincing on that. Um and he is good on on factionalism, which, um, but I don't know how useful it is that he's good on it. In that, you know, the French revolutionaries were super aware of that, and yet you couldn't. It's hard to find a better example of factions just trying <laughs> to cut each other up than you did, yeah, like you know, at that period. And um, the only thing I don't get is, I don't really, I, I actually don't think of him as an idealist at all. I think of him as sort of just this abject pessimist. because like, I don't treat one of the reasons that the I mean, I did make sure I had a paragraph there to go, you know, when he wrote the general will, which I do blame for, you know, what happened in the French revolution, I do blame it. That strain of thought I think is in bananism. It's in Nazism. And I think it's in the will of the people. It's totalitarian
0: suddenly. And
2: and what I, what I kind of blame for that is he's, I don't think he's proposing a, a real program for a state to follow except in very very firm conditions you know for city states whatever I think he's mostly just engaging in this act of prolonged pessimism where he's basically like look it, it, if there was an ideal world it would look like this but it will never fucking happen and if it did and then at the end of you know the thing you get oh and by the way if any of this did happen it would instantly just get destroyed by the government anyway so he's not even he can't even he just doesn't think any of it's going to happen he's this relentlessly eccentric i sort of rather like him but but it it just it turned from his weird eccentric dismissal of the chance of everything anything ever being okay into a sort of moral driving force for the collective over the individual and and then the final note i I would have on this i guess is i remember a friend of mine when i was trying to talk all through this but i had a friend of mine talking about it he sort of said you know what i honestly was trying to give him the benefit of the doubt and then he just started talking <laughs> about how good sparta was and i thought "No, nah, you know what fuck yeah. you <laughs> and i think that is the defining bit where that's where you lose patience with him you're like maybe 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 and then he mentions
0: sparta and you're like no all right i'm out i'm done i can't be it." but wasn't it but wasn't it, i mean he he's was, was certainly totalitarian but wasn't the wasn't the pessimism didn't he have again didn't he have a point about pe- the pessimism again if you're like uh, you know you're in a a, a shit situ- uh, a shit situation in life, and see no you know you don't see any way out of it. You're 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 told just to ex- to accept that this is your lot and it's fucked. Um, I mean you don't see much of, well, maybe you do maybe you do locally in your in your in your friendships and your family and your your locality, but in but in the system you don't see you don't see much optimism about about human nature. I mean you see you see. I mean, you, you could only be driven to pessimism by by what by what you what you see in politics. But the guys that improved
2: the world were all were all idealists. You know, they didn't do what he did. They didn't say, well, you know, fuck individual rights, and they, you know, and, they, and get lost in that. They said, what do we do to restrain power and protect people from it? And they made the world a, a better place. So I, I sort of feel like you you create the world that you have. I mean, you know. You follow me on Twitter, so you'll know that I'm not necessarily noted for my optimism. <laughs> and I definitely have you know, like,
0: I was as a character, more optimistic I, than I expected.
2: But, right. I mean, I get the pessimism. I mean, I get it. That is that is not, you know, it is a natural disposition I might have. But like u- ultimately the guys that change things are the ones that thought, well, how do we improve this? rather than just how we just sort of accept that everything yeah. would always be terrible. Um yeah.
0: You can come it right from a negative point of view and say it's to protect against the, the, the proclivities of, of humans and humanity. Sorry, gone. i No, he's oh, going exactly portrait. as I thought it would. Exactly Swiss as I thought it would.
2: got trapped in a conversation about Russo, and if he said that my eyes glazed over earlier when we were talking about naval
3: books, he looked like he was just ready to jump out the fucking window. That thief Russo, that false ranting dog of a Swiss rapparee, crack it, Gabalense.
1: Now, I don't know if either of you speak any Scots. Um, a little
2: no, I don't know what that means. Crack it,
1: Gabalunzi. I take it it doesn't mean anything good.
2: I'm
0: sure it's not
2: good. Well, I mean, Hume was quite. I mean, he was all right towards him. I thought there is like an amazing subgenre of philosophers slagging off Rousseau. which I kind of love, and the best example is is Bertrand Russell, and it's in I the history to of.
0: I have to go and read this bit, this bit it of Russell is, Russell. I've got the book here, I need to
2: read that. It is so, so funny. It's about 17 pages. It's the most catty thing he has ever written in his life. And each sentence just drips with disdain. Because he's constantly, as he does the philosophy, he's like, no, because of course Russo thought it would all be much better if we were just swinging from the fucking trees. Like, <laughs> it is utterly fantastic. I can't recommend it highly enough.
0: Blossoms are really good at it as well. Uh, 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 Bernard, Bernard Crick. Uh, I was at a conference and I was introduced to Bernard Crick by my supervisor. Um, and Steve's writing about utilitarianism. And said, utilitarianism? That's ridiculous. Some people like pain and walked off. I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> three years, up in smoke. <laughs> they most respected thinkers in the UK. Fucked. <laughs> <laughs> in one sentence.
2: Jesus. <laughs> so like, it's okay, Steve. It's okay, Steve. We can
0: talk about
2: that later. It's okay. <laughs> there's, um, there's also a very good line in Bertram Rod. just in case you think he's just anti rousseau because he's also pretty nasty towards Locke. So, Locke, you know, Locke's argument starts from the state of nature thing, right? So we're all, you know, before political society, and then, you know, on what conditions is it that people got together and decided we should have a state? Which is, you know, most people will just say, you know, it's a thought experiment. It's like a Bible story. You're trying to establish the moral basis of the state. I, it's not clear, by the way, I, I think that, that Locke does think that. He's, it's quite hard to disentangle. But there's just this, like, sentence in Bertram Russell's bit where he's like, now, this might sound absurd. And you may doubt whether Locke really believed that this actually took place. But he's like, I'm very sorry to tell you that it does appear that he did. And like, even in Locke's <laughs> place where he's really quite supportive, he's still pretty fucking snidey about him, to be honest. <laughs> uh, Russell,
0: loved, Russell, Russell loves this, though. That book, that book is absolutely full of... Cutting dismiss- cutting dismissals of great philosophers.
2: It is beautiful. That book is so beautifully written. I I absolutely awesome. adore it. Yeah,
0: it's really awesome. I love it.
1: So, Ian, one thing that I really thought was um, thought it was really thought provoking for me, and you've discussed it also on 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 Romaniacs. I, well, I think it was Romania, it might have been the other one, but um you've discussed it on the podcast, which is um, this notion of identity. Um, we can't, on the one hand, insist on our right to assert our own identity in, in, in a complex way, by all means, but our, our own identity and to criticise the other side for trying to take away our identity while at the same time telling them that you know patriotism isn't um, a valid sentiment, isn't a valid motivating force for their politics. Patriotism as a valid choice, the point that you made there was a very strong one. I, I guess... What's then interesting is to explore its limits, or where 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 patriotism goes from being an expression of one's identity to being a, a virtue. When patriotism is a virtue, it implies that the absence of patriotism is is a non is a vice. So where 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 does one draw that line between um, establishing something as part of one's identity on the one hand, and then
2: saying well, and therefore it is right, and it, and and the absence of it is wrong. So. <coughs> right so uh, by the way this isn't just patriotism this to me also is the forms of identity that we often see on the left you know people especially if they're part of their black identity their latino identity um your gender identity your sexual identity um we're in a period where we're formula where we're really in the furnace of these ideas of Mm. competing ideas about identity and the liberal view to me is i think ultimately quite simple it's that it is it is more than acceptable it's even you know the good sense of identity springs from within the bad sense of identity is imposed from above and that is to say that it is an attempt to make you into homogeneous blocks of humanity that have nothing that distinguishes you and have a very firm line between you and other groups this actually goes back to our discussion of relativism because that is essentially a form of relativism the liberal view is we care about the freedom of the individual. Now, individuals constantly express a desire to belong, to be part of a group, to have a form of identity. Like, and I have that in myself. Like I do consider myself patriotic. Like I, I have a love for Britain. I also have a love for Europe. I have a massive love, above all others, for London. And so my, my and my mum is Guatemalan. I also consider myself Latino. Like that is a part of who I am. It is my, if it matters to the individual, it must matter to liberalism because liberalism is concerned with the individual and it is demonstrably the case that most people at most times do actually have a very strong sense of wanting to express their identity and that can be just cultural, it can be about music and cuisine or it can also be political, Of taking the history that you have of taking... the the struggles you've been through, um, and having that as part of a political idea. The point where it starts becoming a problem is when it limits the individual. So if we say to someone, you know, you have to, you know, sing to the flag every morning or else you're not really British. If we say you have to reject the EU or else you're not really British, that is a limitation on the individual. So it falls on the basis of the reasons which justify it in the first place. It's an intolerable form of identity because it limits the individual choice that makes identity meaningful in the first place. And that, to me, is where the fight is. And it's a fight on the left and on the right. It's the whole of identity politics can only be critiqued, can only can we can only find what's good and what's damaging within it. When we approach it with this central moral principle of the freedom of the individual, mm. if we don't, we start falling into very, very dangerous territory, indeed, the kind of territory that we 're all very familiar with mm. because we 're fucking living through it
0: yeah, yeah. 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 no no you see, you see this everywhere you see fake Romana. you see mm. people accused of uh, you mentioned in the book, you can see people accused of being coconuts. you, see, you know people who are, yeah. uh, who are who are who are who are then limit limited in their identity by the people by mm. By that group, by that group itself, yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah, or people. I mean, the, the most extraordinary example, you know, one point where someone's told you're not really gay because you're yes. a Republican.
0: <laughs> you think like, ah, I'm pretty sure you're still still gay, like yeah.
2: You're a self-hating but Jew, or, right? a, yeah, yeah. It. Yeah. Exactly. But,
0: but isn't that where identity leads as well? So, I mean, I'm sure it's the same for both of you that there's subject subjects that, like on Twitter, you'd never talk about because there's simply no way to have a nuanced. Mm respectful, respectful, respectful dis- respectable discussion about it. Because mm-hmm. if you be- if, if if you have one set of beliefs, you must believe this about this. And yet now we see issues where people with very, you know, ostensibly very similar basic beliefs dis- disagree about stuff, and this causes a, a sort of shred- a shredding of the identity. You mentioned this in the book: the way that the the, the uh, categories of identity pixelize. You know, it gets down and down and down, granular to a to a mm-hmm. to a to a granular level. Um, yeah, and of course there is one granular level, and that's the individual, and the individual identity, and the individual's identity, and that, that that's the ultimate granular level. Uh,
2: well, they, they
0: and, and people like pain. See, till terrorism's wrong. Okay, right.
2: <laughs> the thing is, we we can't. You know, the the danger is that we we just go into this world where we go, well, only the individual matters, and, and identity doesn't exist, and that that just makes us completely irrelevant to people, and um, we. We have to be able to speak as to people's sense of belonging, and that again is a moral imperative on liberalism because the individual desires it, and it's only by being they
0: desire it exactly,
2: yes, yeah, and that that's the crucial part, and it's only in that way that you can be the guardian of the individual on the basis of what the individual anyway wants, and again this takes us back to what we said at the start, like this stuff is complicated and it is unsatisfying the answers that liberalism provides are unsatisfying answers it's so much easier just to go we're the good guys and they're the baddies but that is a zero sum game that gets us fucking nowhere and and most importantly that lesson has to be taken on the left because if that's the road that you go down simply on and put aside any of the moral problems on simple electoral calculations we lose you know, and, we're, and we are losing you know that's what you saw with trump that's what you saw with brexit if it breaks down into identity war the left liberal left loses over and over and over again you cannot allow those tribes to be these homogenous blocks you have to maintain the individual within them and that comes down to the way in which we speak about these issues but if, if liberals are too scared to go near them if, if they if they suspect that any talk of a desire to belong is somehow, you know, dangerous to the system. They can't even be part of the conversation. I think that's where we've been so far. And that that lack of a liberal involvement in the debate is why it's broken down into these jagged, brutal categories, rather than one that's about human enrichment, human self-creation, human flourishing, through, you know, the sense of belonging and your own autonomy combined.
0: Yeah, I think that's where the... I think that's where the... the Part of where the complacency came in as well, you know, the... Mm -hmm. We figured this was all just fine. People, be what you be what be what you, be what you want. Mm. Um we thought we thought we'd won, basically, or we're he- or we're or we're heading towards an inevitable inevitable victory. Mm-hmm. Um, on, this, on this, though, I wanted to ask about. I want to bring it a bit to the to to where we are. Uh, there's a bit towards the end um, on, uh, you know, so uh, the the twentieth century history is really about. Uh, it's really about uh, fascism and totalitarianism, and then liberalism biting back. Um, but then we get to the 21st century, and it's about it's about populism. You know, from then on, really the, the, the book's about about populism and the response for a lack of it. And one of the things that uh, that really that really struck me was a bit about truth and how central to eradicating the concept of currency of truth is. You know, because there's always been this tension with democracy. There's always been this will of the people thing, mm-hmm. majoritarianism. Fifty plus one means something in, dem- in democratic terms. Um, so the will of the people is more important than truth or reality. But the will of the people. But what the absence of what the elimination of truth does is it means the will of the people isn't even decided by the people. The will of the people is decided by the people who pump out the pump out the misinformation. So even if majority tyranny was justifiable in democratic terms. It completely fails on its own. It completely again. It fails on its. It fails on its own terms. But this is where we are. How do we? How do we get out of this? How does? Tr- how does truth become currency again?
2: So, I mean, to me, that lies with all of us, and and we can't. You know, it's not. A, again, it's not a satisfying answer. There are three stages to the battle. The first is within political parties. That each political party in each country is its own battleground, because the left, the right they all face their own struggles with this way of thinking. And at the moment, they're losing. And so, you know, the book is obviously very critical of right-wing liberalism, of laissez-faire. But nevertheless, laissez-faire liberals are liberals. And they have their own battles to be fighting with with the NATO syringe, just as we do on the left. So within each party is the first layer. The second is in um, individual pressure groups, for instance, on things like immigration and, for instance, on, on you know, freedom of speech. And But the third and the most important to me is The battle that you have as an individual to entrench your values and liberal values are not about where we end up. They're about how we conduct politics. Do we conduct it on the basis of objective truth, on reason, on on individual freedom, on the basis of moderation above all things, this light touch, non-zero sum approach towards politics that can um, manage the conflicts that are inherent within it. And so it's in the manner that we conduct ourselves. I think the reason that we failed goes back to that complacency that we thought we we signed up to that myth of a direction of history, that everything was moving always in our direction. And it isn't. And it doesn't. You know, you have to create the world that you're in by the manner in which you speak. And, and the battle to me, there's such a lot of pessimism at the moment, but the battle to me doesn't seem to be lost. Like if you look right now at the press, and the public approach towards the Johnson government and the Trump government, for instance. But there is still a desire, once you break out from some of the tribalism, to assess people on, by virtue of what is objectively true. Look at the, the way that Trump's treatment for COVID, whatever the fuck is going <laughs> on there, has yeah. been treated. It, 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 ultimately, that debate is about, well, hang on, this doesn't fucking make sense. Like, none of this is making sense to us at the moment. Why is this doctor saying this today and not yesterday? Why is he behaving in this way? that that method of conducting politics on a really granular basis is the way in which we fight back by committing to our principles in the manner in which we conduct ourselves, not so much in the end goals that we're trying to achieve. So like the really unsatisfying, but fundamentally true answer is it's up to us. Oh fuck. I don't want to but sound isn't... like I'm in a fucking TV <laughs> movie I mean, in a courtroom scene with some subpar fucking Tom Cruise impersonator, but
0: nevertheless, it is, it's, it's up to, it is, it's up to us. But isn't it? But I mean, liberals are constantly fighting for not for people who aren't liberals. I mean, that's that's the nature of liberalism. You're, yeah, yeah. you're fighting for the rights of everybody, including people who don't like rights. Um, and you know, if enough people simply don't give a shit about the truth, it's just liberals. Who, it's 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 only liberals who liberals who liberals who care about it. And you see this in any in any movement. At a certain point, people are willing. To give up, give up some level of honesty for the for the, for the for the for the good of the campaign, or the good yeah, of the yeah. movement, or the good of the party, or whatever, you know. So, wasn't there wasn't there an inevitability with te- technology plus democ plus the majoritarianism built into democracy? Wasn't there a sort of inevitability that we'd that we that we that, that we'd get that we yeah. get to? The, get I
1: think to I think that's right. I think that's that's that was my that was my thought as well. You know, where does where where did this complexity come from how did complexity nuance become something that was um such an integral part of our culture and 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 how did it disappear and 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 i think that that's got a lot to do i mean i think you're absolutely right steve i think that um in a way nuance and complexity it is elitist it's about people who are highly educated it's about um uh, um
0: only because they make it so. Only because the highly educated make it so. It doesn't have. It doesn't have to be, and that's where that's definitely where the complacency came in. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I
2: agree. Look, it doesn't. It really doesn't have to. Uh, and I and I think if we go, if we get to the point where complexity is about the highly educated, then we're we're fucked because the world is complex. But I don't think it is. And good and good politicians on the liberal left were previously able to talk about a complex world in ways that could be understood by anyone listening. This is not beyond the realms of what humans can do. And I think the same applies to the impact that that technology has on our standards of truth, which is obviously very severe and at the moment has had a severe effect. That There is nevertheless a a way of um, people behaving online that is done by your own example that can cement those core values, even as technology pulls us in the direction of the algorithm, you know, in a direction towards emotion and tribalism. We, we still have agency in these in these situations, and, and we can't sort of give in to this sort of this despair about the inevitability of the decline.
1: No, I, I agree. Like, with, I mean, you're definitely right that it's possible. I mean, of course it's possible because we've, we've all lived through it. I mean, we're all of us old enough to have lived through a period of complexity and nuance in, in, in public life and um that was a great achievement that was the great achievement of our, of our of our civilization if you like and so there's there's, there's it would be crazy to say that it's not possible I mean it certainly is possible um the problem is that there is if you like a kind of um uh momentum uh, a natural um entropy if you like it, 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 things want to collapse back into the sim, into the simple into the simplistic mm-hmm. you know, simplism is, is 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 if you like the the path of least resistance that that you know the 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 water is always going to find its way down into that valley and and how do we fight that um with new technology we're seeing that it has naturally fallen into that that pattern what what can we do to rescue it i mean this is not something we're going to answer in the in the final five minutes of the podcast but
2: But, um, but there are signs also that technology can help right so you look at um conspiracy theories um, I did shitloads of research on conspiracy theories only to find that I couldn't fit it into the narrative <laughs> of the book, which sucks. And I hate your next the book? Well, yeah, maybe. What, what the uh, one after the rest of the moment, book, maybe. I'm just full of anger and disappointment. Anything that I had to spend time <laughs> researching that I couldn't fit in the book just fills me full of hate. Um, nevertheless, what was interesting about it was uh, the speed with which um, conspiracy theories are developed now is obviously much, much faster because of social media. The speed with which we can refute them and refute them in a way that actually convinces people is also much much faster because of social media. So you look when you dig down into various elements. There's ways. It's it's not just a, a, a downward slope. There's lots of areas where we're actually finding it easier to get accurate information out there to people. And there's slowly, very 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 fucking slowly, there is a, a growing recognition in social media companies that they have a social obligation, to, mostly because they're being pushed into it. Um, which you see with the sort of half-in, half-out sort of Twitter attitudes towards Donald Trump's messaging, for instance, um, which is deeply unsatisfying, but nevertheless, we are starting to get there with them. That, uh, look, I'm not saying this will be easy. I, I guess my thing is that, especially among liberals, I, I've felt for the last five years just this sense of absolute catatonic despair and resignation, and I just think that, from that doesn't help. Yeah, we, we, we can do this thing. It is doable, and it's up to us. And, and you know, but, like well, when I'm telling people what I did 20 years later, I, I don't want to be like, I, I kind of gave up and yeah. mourned on Twitter, which admittedly I do do a lot yeah, of. Well, but yeah. nevertheless, I want to be like, well, I fought it.
1: But what I'm hearing you say, Ian, is that what, what we need, that the way to resolve this is by EU legislation. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Have you ever responded to a conversation without that executive summary at the end?
0: No, I have not. <laughs> <laughs> because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, some, there's, some, there's some positive stuff. There's something pos- positive that's definitely happened with social media in that you've got the re-emergence of public thinkers and public experts. Mm. Um yeah. And, and that's what, you know, that's what Russell, that's what Russell was. My mum talked about listening to Russell, on the, Russell give lectures on the radio or give talks on the, on the radio and how wonderful it was. And you do now have, in fact, you say thank you to some of them like Dimitri in your book, <laughs> um, but uh, you do now have sort of public, yeah, public thinkers in a way that I think when I was growing up, growing up in the 80s and 90s, there was a, there was a bit of a, there was a bit of a dearth of that, to be honest. Well, we oh, would yeah. have been, thirty years positive. ago.
1: We would have been doing this down the pub or in the sixth form common room, whereas now we're yeah. doing it on Skype, and it's going to be listened to by probably a, f- a few
0: dozen people. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't want to ruin the end of the book because because the end is really really good, Ian. Literally, the last half page is really 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 good, and everybody should go and read it. But I won't spoil it. Okay. Um, but just before that. You say this is the liberalism of the future. If ever there was a time for liberalism to let things be, it's past. The new dot dot dot. The new liberalism must be radical, or it'll be nothing. I think that's really, I think that's really absolutely key here. Because what's taken over are radical ideologies. We have, we had radic- radical left ideologies taking over the taking over the opposition. We, we're in the midst of very seriously radical right. You know, uh, very radical right authoritarian ideologies that are that are in power in lots of places, and yeah, I think the have a cup of tea and some cake and and talk about it doesn't cut. I think it. I think it really does have to be. Maybe this is my ruffo coming out again, but I feel like it has to to be. It has to be hardline liberalism.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, look. Why are we? Why why are we getting you know, these kinds of anti-liberal or non-liberal radicalisms doing so well? And it's because liberalism failed to engage in its principles. It failed to provide freedom of the individual for groups left behind by laissez-faire. It failed to help those who suffered racial and sexual and gender discrimination. And those were liberal failures. You know, they weren't a different kind of failure. They're a failure to protect the individual. And where you do that, Other voices will come in as they have right now and sell them the same old pack of lies to say you're in a fundamental, you know, conflict with this other group you're homogenous you're defined by your similarities but you have very strong boundaries with others and they'll create an identity war so unless radical liberalism is something to offer those people left behind by the old system of let things be it's fine we're not going to bother helping people although they suffer discrimination we're not going to bother helping um societies you know left behind by the market because the market knows best unless it comes back and is liberal that way then we are absolutely fucked It has to be radical liberalism. That is the only solution. That's not some kind of strategic thing. It's about us recognising the things that liberalism did wrong before, rectifying them now, because any of the other answers will be much more pernicious than that.
1: I mean, that's the perfect note to end the podcast, I think. Because I couldn't couldn't agree more. And um, it's been... A real pleasure to talk to you, Ian. Um, I oh, think you your too, book guys. is an incredibly valuable contribution. I, I'm, everybody up should up go out and read it. 63.
2: Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> it, it goes really badly wrong on page 64. I'm sorry <laughs> to you, but, you know,
0: it, it's fine.
2: <laughs> guys, thank you so much for having me. It's been It's a pleasure. It's an absolute pleasure to be on the podcast.
0: I'm okay. just blown away that people can be asked to write, that you can just be asked to write a book like this. I mean, it's not, I, I think it's not, I just could not could not be asked to do it, even if with the best of intentions. <laughs> yeah, when it's, it's essentially normal.
1: non-lazy to, to, to do that, yeah. Listen, thank you thank you very much indeed to you, Ian, for your time. Really appreciate it. Such a pleasure to meet you uh, virtually at, at long last. Steve, you too. Such a pleasure to see you again. Looking really well. Um, I hope that I will see you both in this format or even in real life again really soon, um, that we'll come back again on the podcast to both of you. So thanks very much. And on that note... Bye bye.
0: We're, Cheers, up. bye. we're going up the wrong way. We're going up the wrong way. We're going to have to stop The creepy itself, a secret was. We can't expose them all. We're going up the wrong
3: way, we're going to have to stop. A seeming soft, a natural loss.
0: Have you re- Did you read his
1: book, Chris? Did I read his book? I read, I read up... I'm, I'm currently on the English Civil War. <laughs>
2: <laughs> then you're still doing better than my mother, who constantly is just like, oh no, it's great, it's, it's good here. And I'm like, what are you up to? She's like, um, uh, Descartes? And I'm like, oh, so page 10. You've oh, had it for like a
0: month.
1: I'm really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying it, but I'm not a fast reader. <laughs> I didn't know
0: much about it.
1: All right, so shall I, I'll, 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 I'll sort of lead into it, and then you guys can go from your...
0: <laughs> oh, you what poor thing. I've upbraided about the bits that I thought he was wrong about now. So that's <laughs> I love also that
2: Chris has an expression at certain moments, which I know very well as like a comics fan. It's whenever like, I, I find someone else who likes comics and we start chatting, the third person would always have the expression that Chris had when Russo came up, that it was like, oh, wait, how long, how long it for? Like, it's that false ranting dog of a Swiss rapparee.